This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. It's just like a jail. You can't do nothing. They just watch you every time you go to work, they watch you. If you go anywhere, they watch you. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. The law can be a tool for justice and injustice. Starting in 1907, right here in America, legislators in dozens of states passed laws that made it legal to forcibly sterilize people considered by some doctors and scientists to be unfit because they had committed a crime, had a mental illness, or were disabled. Or for a host of other reasons, more than 60,000 children, teenagers, and young adults were sterilized in state hospitals. A few of them are still alive. Life of the Law producer Jess Engbritson reports. Rose Brooks grew up in the small Virginia city of Lynchburg, in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And when she was about six years old, she made a strange discovery. The woman she thought of as her mother was actually her grandmother. Rose's mother had died giving birth to her, so the little girl was raised by her grandmother. This setup worked fine at first, but as Rose got older, so did her grandmother. She fell and broke her arm, and I helped her with that. She was almost 88, and uh, she fell and broke her hip. Rose's grandmother was hospitalized. When she recovered, she sat down with her teenage granddaughter to talk about the future. And uh, she told me that her life was kind of getting to the end. But I said, no, Grandma, you could still walk. She couldn't take care of me at her age. And I was growing up to be a teenager. I was about 16. And she said, well, if I wanted to put me somewhere, and it was at the training school. The training school was the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, a residential program in the outskirts of the city. A social worker had promised her grandmother that Rose would get a good education at the state colony. But when Rose arrived, the place wasn't what she'd expected. We didn't have a classroom. We didn't have no teachers there. It wasn't no education. It wasn't. Instead, she was put to work, feeding and bathing other residents who couldn't care for themselves. We got about $2 a month. $2? That's what we got. The colony was just a few miles outside of Lynchburg. But Rose says it felt like a world all its own. It's just like a jail. 
you can't do nothing. They just watch you every time you go to work, they watch it. If you go anywhere, they watch it. And we had this woman, it's uh, a nurse over, I had blue hair. She was a mean person. She would always say, you can't behave yourself. But I told her, yeah, I know how to behave. After about a year, one day Rose was called into a meeting. The colony's head doctor was there, along with some other staff. Dr. Nagel was ahead spoke up and said, folks, this woman has to have an operation, keep having children. I said, oh, I love to not have it done, but you gotta have it done. I said, what? I said, I'd rather not. Rose says the doctor wouldn't take no for an answer. And then they say, well, everybody in this facility has to have it. So I went ahead and had it done. He said, if I didn't, I'd never leave there. Rose wanted very much to leave the state colony. So eventually, she stopped arguing. At 19, she was sterilized against her wishes. It was 1960, and a 1924 Virginia law still allowed the state to sterilize people who were considered, quote, insane, idiotic, imbecile, feeble-minded or epileptic, unquote. Men were given vasectomies and women were given salpingectomies. That's the removal of the fallopian tubes. Dozens of other states had passed similar laws, a product of the early 20th century eugenic movement. The whole idea was to avoid having children who were ill or children who grew up with disabilities. This is Paul Lombardo, a scholar who studies the history of eugenics at Georgia State University College of Law. Eugenics in the first part of the 20th century is really kind of a, uh, a science, a science of health, a science of attempting to eradicate disease, and a number of other conditions, poverty, criminality, what was called feeble-mindedness or mental defect. All of these things were thought to be hereditary. So if you were an average person in the U.S. in 1915, let's say, you might very well think that eugenics was a great idea. It's hard to fathom how mainstream these ideas were at the time. County fairs hosted better baby contests in which children were judged alongside pies and cows and enormous tomatoes. A Chicago politician running for office in 1915 pitched himself as the eugenic candidate and public exhibits warned that, quote, some are born to be a burden to the rest. So to many Americans, sterilization laws seemed like a scientific, progressive policy, not all that different from, say, compulsory vaccination. Even the Supreme Court thought so. In 1927, the court heard the case of Carrie Buck, a Virginia woman who contested the state's right to sterilize her. Writing for the majority, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes concluded that compulsory sterilization was constitutional. Again, Paul Lombardo. And he said, we often send off our best citizens to war. And he was, of course, talking about himself in this case, who'd been shot three different times in the Civil War. We often send off the best citizens and ask them to sacrifice their lives. So it wouldn't be so much to ask 
of these people, people like Carrie Buck, for what Holmes called a lesser sacrifice to be sterilized. And in fact, uh, they owe it to us. Otherwise, we might be swamped with incompetence. Holmes' fear of being swamped with incompetence arose from the fact that both Carrie Buck's mother and her infant daughter had also been judged, quote, feeble-minded. Writing the court's majority opinion, Holmes suggested that the Bucks were a tainted family. It is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Paul Lombardo's research has since shown that most of the character witnesses who testified to Carrie Buck's feeble-mindedness hadn't seen her since she was an infant. And her own defense lawyer was a former chairman of the state colony's board. But at the time, the court's decision was celebrated. Several newspapers around the country ran an article titled, Decision Held, Step Toward a Super Race. An improved race of Americans is on its way as a result of the Supreme Court decision upholding the Virginia sterilization law it was predicted today by government health authorities. The more unfit rendered sterile, the more rapid will be the development of a race of supermen in America, said Dr. Claude C. Pierce, acting Surgeon General of the United States. The Supreme Court decision is a step towards a super race, although it is but a feeble step. There is no justification for the breeding of That super race was, as you might guess, the white race. Virginia's sterilization law had passed together with a second law, the Racial Integrity Act, which banned interracial marriage. The measures were two sides of the same coin. The Racial Integrity Act was intended to keep whites from marrying people of other races, while the Sterilization Act was meant to keep that white race free of poverty, promiscuity, and disease. On paper, the sterilization law had due process protections, like pre-sterilization hearings, that were supposed to prevent abuses. But in practice, it didn't always work that way. So here is some transcripts from individuals who were sterilized. This is Mark Bold, a lawyer who runs the Justice for Sterilization Victims Project. Several years ago, He dug up transcripts of sterilization hearings that Virginia had released after a 1981 lawsuit. He read me one in which someone named Mr. Davis, probably an administrator, leads a sterilization hearing for a woman whose name is redacted. And so Mr. Davis asked, this is, I'll just say Jane Doe. This is Jane Doe, is it? She replies, yes, sir. How old are you? Jane Doe responds, 17. How long have you been here? Around eight months. Are you going to school? I was going, but I quit. Do you like the movies? Yes, sir. Do you like the funnies? Yes, sir. You don't mind being operated on, do you? No, sir. All right, you can go ahead. That's the end of the transcript. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. 19 years before Rose Brooks was sterilized at the Virginia State Colony, a boy named Lewis Reynolds had been admitted to the same facility. Lewis had been misdiagnosed with epilepsy, and the family doctor told the boy's father that he'd be better cared for at the colony. I didn't know they were going to operate on me, but they operate anyhow. Doctors at the state colony sterilized Lewis at age 13. He didn't find out what had happened until a doctor told him years later. This Navy doctor told me that I could have sex all I want to, but I couldn't have no children. And he told me then that I was sterilized. Now a white-haired 87-year-old, he lives alone in a clapboard house not far from where he grew up in Lynchburg. I am sorry they done that to me so I couldn't have no children. And I love children. Whatever happened to me back in my younger days, I wish it never happened. After he left the state colony, Lewis joined the Marine Corps. He served in Korea and Vietnam. Eventually, he came home and married a woman named Dolores. But he could never bring himself to tell her that he had been sterilized. Dolores has since passed away. She never knew about it. We didn't have no children, but she didn't leave me. If I could have had a family, I'd probably had two or three children. I think about that all the time. And sometimes I just cry because the people done me wrong. I cry sometimes when I see a lady pregnant, and I know she's going to have a baby. Excuse me. After Rose Brooks recovered from her sterilization, she thought she'd be allowed to leave the colony. But administrators kept her there for 11 more years. When she was released at age 30, she found a job making coffee and cleaning floors at a Howard Johnson's. Like Lewis Reynolds, she settled in Lynchburg and married. At 75, she's a sharp dresser with a ready laugh. When we meet, she's wearing jewelry and bright lipstick. She takes solace in her church community. But the effects of those 12 years at the colony remain with her. They ruined my life over there. And then when I got out, the same thing. You just didn't have a normal life. And I forgive people because God told me. But this thing, it shouldn't have never happened. As Rose worked to build a new life, Virginia's eugenic program continued to sterilize others at the Lynchburg Colony and at five other centers around the state. Paul Lombardo, the legal scholar, thinks that the program's staying power had to do with the people it targeted. Um, They were, after all, mostly poor people or people with disabilities, and there was no lobby to say this shouldn't happen. So the laws stayed in place. Through the 20s, the 30s, The 40s, the 50s, the 60s. It really wasn't until what we would describe as the civil rights revolution of the 60s and 70s, in which there were many cases brought not about sterilization, but about conditions of people in state institutions, whether those were prisons or uh, mental hospitals or or places like the Virginia Colony. And it really was as a result of challenges to the 
reproductive rights of lots of people that states began to rethink these laws and eventually, little by little, repealed them. Virginia's last eugenic sterilizations took place in 1979, according to state records. Nationally, over 60,000 Americans were sterilized under similar laws, most in California, Virginia, and North Carolina. The majority were women, many were disabled, and nearly all were poor. Over the past five years, a few states have begun to discuss the idea of reparations for survivors of eugenic sterilization. It started with public hearings in North Carolina. Survivors turned out to speak about their experiences and argued that monetary compensation was only fair. State lawmakers agreed, in principle. But actually deciding on a number, how much they would pay people, that was tougher. How do you put a monetary value on the biological ability to have a child, or on having that ability taken away without consent? North Carolina actually put together a task force. This is Mark Bold again, the attorney with the Justice for Sterilization Victims Project. Who, through research and time and um, just really thinking about what's just compensation, what's adequate, they came up with $50,000. In 2013, North Carolina became the first state to offer compensation to victims of its eugenic sterilization program. Meanwhile, Virginia lawmakers proposed a similar bill, but they only offered $25,000 per person. This did not go over well with survivors in Lynchburg. And I asked the victims if they're satisfied with that, then they weren't. Uh, they felt that in a sense, it was a slap in the face, right? Because they were saying, you're half the value of North Carolina's victims. And so that was kind of hard for them to swallow about, well, why? why t I mean, why, what's the motive and the reasoning behind the $25,000 as opposed to 50000 Mark says the group decided not to support the proposal. They hoped that a $50,000 bill would be introduced the next year and pass. But in 2015, legislators stuck with the original number, $25,000. Some of the survivors felt that the legislature was playing hardball. Lewis Reynolds was one of them. I think they're waiting for everybody to die so they won't have to give them none. Two people died last year. It was those deaths that changed things. Many of the survivors started to feel that $25,000 soon was better than the possibility of $50,000 sometime in the future. So the group decided to support the proposal as is. In 2015, it passed with bipartisan support. And ultimately, it's symbolic, right? I mean, no amount of money is really going to restore what was taken away. But I think it's really the idea that the government is now acknowledging what they did was wrong and backing it up with some type of restitution, some compensation. And that's rare for governments to do. Lewis Reynolds and Rose Brooks both applied for compensation as soon as Virginia began accepting applications in late 2015. Then they settled down to wait. One day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's all I'm asking from you. In January 2016, Lewis and Rose each received a letter from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Inside was a note stating that their claims had been approved, and a check for $25,000. Lord, help me today, 
show me the way one day at a time. For Life of the Law, I'm Jess Sangabretson. And I'm Nancy Mullane. At Life of the Law, we've been pretty stunned by Jess's story about eugenics. So next week, we're going to present a bonus conversation we've had with some scholars and experts about eugenics and the law, past and present, how it all happened, and how in some ways it's still happening today. That's next week, a bonus conversation on Life of the Law. Sign up for our newsletter, and you'll receive a notification by email. Sterilized was reported by Jess Engbertson and edited by Annie Avilas with sound design and production by Shawnee Alvarum. Thanks to Life of the Law's production team, Alyssa Bernstein, Ashley Cleek, Kirsten Jesuits Heidel, and Jonathan Hirsch for their production and post-production work and to Howard Gelman, our engineer. Special thanks to Michael Scholar Jr. who helped us by reading historical documents in the feature episode. If you'd like to hear stories about the law, Tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. We're in production on stories about the law in courthouses, classrooms, and on our streets. Take a few minutes to listen and post your review on iTunes. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Every two weeks, we publish a new episode and send people who have signed up to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law with notes from our reporters, updates on stories you may have already heard, and a preview of our upcoming episodes. You can sign up at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, the Ford Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It only takes a minute. Make a donation and we'll send you one of Life of the Law's thank you gifts, a mug that's just right for tea, a bright red reporter notebook, or a handy canvas bag to carry books home from the library. Next on Life of the Law. After spending a morning in a General Sessions courtroom, I have to say that Jefferson was right in theory and that Bierce was right in reality. They say that in America everything's for sale. Seems to me some things shouldn't be. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. <laughs>